This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the managing editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to Kerry Knudsen, a lichenologist at the Czech University of Life Sciences in Prague. He's a world-leading lichen expert who has discovered dozens of lichen species and currently has 20 more on his desk just waiting to be described. In this episode, he tells us all about the biology of lichens. So, Kerry, just to start us off, uh, what is a lichen? A lichen is a symbiosis between either an algae or, or a cyanobacteria with a fungus. Lichens occur on wood, rock, soil, plants, and if you leave a car sitting too long, it'll grow on that too. So if there is a symbiotic association between this sort of fungus and algae, can that fungus or algae exist by itself or can they only exist within this sort of lichen system? Uh, the algae can definitely exist on its own. The, the fungus has to, has to form a lichenization or, or it'll die. <laughs> so how many species of lichen are there? We, we, we usually say there's 18,000 described species. There, there has to be way more than that. I, I just am working on a paper right now. I mean, we're working on in the lab here, and we have 20 undescribed species from the southwest. Wow, the southwest of the U.S., is that? Yeah. And uh, 7% of the, the uh, surface of the earth is supposed to be covered by lichens. In the U.K. there, you have uh, 1,800 species, roughly. Oh, wow. And how many of the lichen species have you discovered? Uh, somewhere... Be- between 70 and 75, I've described. I, I don't keep count. We're busy like <laughs> we're busy on this new 20 right now. So 
So you said that lichens can live on lots of different surfaces. Is there anywhere where they're particularly prevalent or anywhere that they can't live? Well, they're, they're, they, for instance, you won't find them like in really deep shade or uh, in the desert. You can go in. I work a lot in the desert. You can go through large parts of the desert at low elevations and, and there's no lichens at all. So, so they do. Each lichen has kind of uh, some, for instance, like are only grow in the mountains. Some you find just uh, growing in, in seawater and the tide. Uh, so they do have limitations. It depends on each species. Because they do seem to be particularly prevalent around the coast as well, don't they? If you're going for a walk along some cliffs, then you'll see a lot of lichens on rocks and things like that. Well, one thing is there aren't much trees. But the main thing is, is there's more humidity. And that uh, and uh, also that allows them, and with the fog and things, that this allows them to photosynthesize more. And you said that they might maybe live on those rocks there because there aren't trees. But I mean, are lichens considered parasites of trees? Because that is one area where you see them a lot. Oh no, lichens aren't parasites of trees. But uh, if you, if you see a dead tree covered with lichens, or if you'll notice on a one or two like very large branches that are dead on a tree, you'll see a lot of lichens. That's because there's usually, there's more sunlight there. Yeah, and you'll find on a, on a really shady tree, you'll find less lichens. And a lot of times you'll find them more on the trunk because the trunk gets more sun, you know. So if I want to start identifying lichens, what's the best way to go about it? The best way to do it is to get a couple picture books and look at them. Uh, there in the UK, you got Dobson's books, which are readily available and cover a lot of species. The main thing is, is once you get used to it, uh, once you look at some pictures, you'll get a, you'll probably be able to recognize them pretty easy. You know, as for identifying them, that's, that's another problem. Because there is a lot of variety in lichens, isn't there? Some are quite tendrily, some are sort of cup shaped, others are more encrusting. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why that it would help looking at pictures so you get an idea of the growth forms. But uh, but none of them, only only a very, none of the ones you'll normally see look like mushrooms. So how long have lichens been around for then? I mean, they look sort of primitive, but are they? Have they been around for millions of years? Well, we, we used to think they came about 400 million years ago. Uh, a, a, a person, Matt Nelson, who I had the pleasure of drinking some pints with recently in Prague, he, he has estimated that they came up 250 million years ago. That would put them in the Permian ex extinction period. And uh, during that time, 90% of the species on Earth were uh, it became extinct. And in the rock record, there's a giant uh, surge of fungal species in the rock record. So, so possibly that, that theory is correct, and they've been around 250 million years. And have they changed a lot in that time, or have they stayed quite similar? I don't think they've evolved, of course, but the, the basic lifestyle form, they have to form a thallus in order to have the algae or, or cyanobacteria grow within it. And uh, that form has limitations. So I doubt if they, they, they may have been taller or bigger at certain periods, but basically they've had to keep a, a thallus-type form in order to grow the algae or, or uh, cyanobacteria within and, and process the food from them. And could they still be evolving or do you think they've got about as good as they can get now? Oh, no, everything's evolving. So we have in lichens even now that there, there's hybridization going on. 
so so yes, the, it, everything's still evolving anyway, even as humans. So maybe not culturally too much, but but, but no, in small ways we are. So how long can lichens live for? Can they be quite long-lived species like corals that can sometimes live for thousands of years? Or are they really quite short-lived? A few are evanescent. I mean, they literally last uh, that one season or so, but those are relatively rare. Uh, especially on hard rock, you can see lichens in the mountains or the desert that possibly are hundreds of years old or, or even thousand. Uh, there's an estimate that one lichen in the Arctic is uh, is an I think it was 9,500 years old, but that's done by measuring it. And, and, and I think if I imagine that the, that, that was estimated on size and stuff. So I don't know how good that act. That's pretty, that's pretty old, <laughs> but, but a thousand years, I wouldn't be surprised if you, you could be up in the Alps and see a thousand year old lichen growing on hard rock. So how quickly do they grow then, if you said you can calculate its age by looking at its size, or is it very much dependent on the species? It's more dependent on the habitat. Okay, so for instance, in the desert, you can, you can uh, growth could be as little as zero to one or two microns a year. And then in other habitats, and, you know, with more moisture and better habitats, the growth can be in millimeters or maybe a centimeter or two. There's a, there are some lichens probably in the Amazon, and the, and there's some reports of cladonias in in um, North America that grow 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 fairly faster than that. But but I I'm not familiar with them myself. So how do lichens reproduce? Okay, well they basically they they produce spores, and the spores are ejected into the into usually during rainy periods because of from hydraulic pressure inside the fruiting body. Anyway, the spores are ejected and land picked up by the air wherever they land, they they germinate and form a small hypha. The hypha has a very short period of time depending on the algae around it, which also have short life cycles to to lichenize one. And then if it lichenizes one, then it begins the slow and process of forming a thallus. It doesn't happen overnight. But, uh, but if they don't, they, if they can't get an algae, you know, they'll, uh, the hypha will die. Can you tell us a little bit more about this thallus? You mentioned it previously, and I wanted to get a better grasp of what it is. Uh, okay. What you see is when you see a lichen, you'll see whether it's a flat or a bunch of little uh, aerials or if it looks like a leaf. Or if it looks like a little little uh, chess piece, anyway, that's the thallus, and the thallus is, is is formed for one reason alone: to keep alive the algae. Within the the thallus, you have uh, the algae forms a layer in it. Usually, then there's a connecting to the substrate. There's a connecting area of, of fungal tissue, and then around the outside is formed a cortex or some kind of surface to protect the algae within. So, so for instance, when you see algae, uh, when they're dry, they're usually, you can see the colors kind of dark, or they might be red or yellow. But when it, they're wet after a rainstorm, for instance, you'll notice that they're green, greenish looking. And that's because the cortex, whatever, whatever pigments are in the cortex, become translucent when it's wet and allow sunlight in. Then when it's dry, the pigments, the pigments help protect against ultraviolet light to protect the algae. 
But the thallus is there for one reason, for that algae or cyanobacteria to survive. So it can feed the lichen. That's why, that's why lichens are not, not killing trees. If you see a fungus growing on a tree, you know it's doing something to the tree, maybe eating the wood or something. But, but the lichen is there. It just needs a place to grow. But it's getting all its food from the algae or cyanobacteria within it. It is very much like a land coral almost, isn't it? Because you think corals have got these algae within them that they use for food. Um, so, yeah, it's like the land version of a coral. But <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. It's, it's the same thing as symbiosis. So is there a particular place on the planet that's especially rich for lichens? Well, first off, the, the lichens are adapted to different habitats. We have lichens growing in the Antarctica you know, we have lichens growing in the desert. So, so they're, they're, they, they vary in habitat. That's not the problem. Almost in any country of the world, you can find at least some habitats, if they're undisturbed of the right kind, you can find 100 to 500 species in. And then, but average, uh, like for instance, in California, where I did a lot of work, yeah, average site had 30 lichens in a relatively small area. Now, we just finished a, a study with Jan Bondrak uh, here in the Czech Republic. There was 674 species in 12 hectares. <laughs> so it just depends, you know. And, and in the Amazon, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen uh, figures for that, but you could have quite a few growing in the upper story of the forest. And if you've got that many species all in one area, will they compete with each other at all or not? Oh yeah, they compete with each other. They uh you can you can see this on rock. They'll they'll sometimes they'll overgrow each other. If they overgrow each other, they kill the one underneath, you know. And 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 lichens they they can be quite violent too because there's for instance lichenicholas lichens. They begin as a fungus and uh their spore lands on a lichen or their hypha comes up through the through the rock or something and penetrates it from below. Then they steal the algae from the the lichen that's there, so they get it, and and then, and then they grow out of it in a different shape. So there's a there's a there's kind of a period invasion of the body snatchers, you know. But there's there's kind of a period in there where there'll be like you can see half of the old lichen and half of the new lichen emerging from it. That also, you can see the adaption of that evolutionary-wise because uh, it's pretty hard finding an algae sometimes, you know. So uh, in that case, they, they they steal it from somebody that's more successful. <laughs> yeah, I can't find my own, just snatch it from you instead. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we know that uh, funguses, they'll um, decompose organic matter. Now, can lichens do this too? Uh, well, no, not technically, no, because the lichen is, the, the fungi are decomposing material for their food. Of course, the lichen is getting its food from the algae or cyanobacteria. What eats lichens then? Well, one thing that for sure eats lichens and causes us a lot, a lot of trouble in the herbarium if we don't freeze our specimens before we save them. Uh, is mites. Uh, you'll see uh, you'll see mites uh, in on a nice wet morning, all swelled up, uh, crawling around on lichens. And uh, if they come back to the herbarium, even they'll stay alive for a while and eat eat the uh, eat the lichens in the in the herbarium. If you they die though, if you freeze them. But but otherwise, all the stories I've heard of of deer or caribou, for instance, eating lichens, they always eat it when the in a bad time. 
So, you know, I mean, there's not much nutrition in lichens. So, but, but, uh, caribous that have been, uh, in, in bad times of the winter that have been cut open, you have their bellies full of lichens, undigested too, in a lot of cases, just, just to, to fill them up. Could we eat lichens if we wanted to? Oh, yeah. Well, people have eaten lichens uh, when they're, I'm sure that uh, George Washington in America fed his troops lichens when he ran out of food. Uh, they, they probably weren't too happy about that. The trouble with lichens, though, is, is they have secondary metabolites in them. So there's some lichens, uh, if you ate enough of them, you could probably get sick in different ways. But uh, no, there's a Japanese, in Japan, there's a lichen that's eaten. Uh, but, you know, it's cut up and mixed with probably mixed with other things and rice and stuff. And that's the only one I know of that for sure anybody eats. And I don't know too much about that one. So you couldn't sit down and have a three course meal of lichens. Then. Yeah, yeah. No, no. <laughs> or if you did, if you did, it'd be you'd be in a terrible situation. Now, everyone sort of thinks that lichens are really beautiful and it can be quite tempting to touch them. Is it OK to do that when you're in the wild or does it damage them if you touch them? No, no, you won't touch them. They're 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 actually uh, they're they're leathery. I wouldn't say this. leathery. Maybe is not the right word, but they definitely have a a, a texture to your fingers that that is hard. It's not like soft, you know. When they and uh, there's only some that are that look like uh, little granules, piles of those. Those you could by touching them, you'd knock and move them around or something. But those are the, those are not your normal looking lichen. And also you hear these stories that if you see lichens, they can perhaps help you navigate if you look for them on tree stumps and things like that. Is this true? With GPS units now, even the worst ones working, you really don't need lichens. But uh, it, in different habitats, lichens, for instance, in the desert, you find lichens always, all, almost always on the north side. Okay. And then here in Europe, uh, I'm in Central Europe right now. In Central Europe, you usually find them on the south side. And the moss is on the north side. The only trouble is, is I was just in the desert and uh, trying to get using my GPS to, to check the what was the uh, side of the rock the lichens were on. There was lichens on all three sides. <laughs> <laughs> three of the four sides directions had lichens on them. So, yeah, probably not too good for navigating. So don't rely on that then if you're lost in the woods. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, only on memory, hopefully. <laughs> So why did you decide to study lichens in the first place? I mean, there aren't many lichenologists around. So what inspired you to do it? Well, I myself was uh, I was a construction worker for, for 25 years and uh, became disabled and uh, was hoping to go back to college, you know, but but uh, couldn't because uh, they figured I was too old. And having been a construction worker, I'd be a bad a bad bet to, to send to a college. So uh, so I, I I found out about lichens. And I knew nobody was working at, on them in Southern California in the area I was in. So I started studying them. My main interest, though, in studying them or if I had become a botanist, I was interested in the diversity, in recording the diversity of life during this sixth distinction we're in right now. And uh, so for the first 15 years, I worked in Southern California and, and did a gradient collecting lichens from the desert all the way out to the islands. There's eight islands off the coast of Southern California. That puts us through mountains, valleys, and and along the coast, and then out onto islands along the seashore too. And the reason I did that is in the 20th century, at the beginning of the 20th century, 
The first lichenologist in Southern California for 15 years traveled all back and forth across Southern California and left a record that's at Harvard of his specimen. So I knew if I built a collection, that could be compared with the 20th century. And and hopefully in the 22nd century, it'll be of some value. So I was interested in diversity. And, and actually, I'm a taxonomist. So most of the time, I'm either describing or revising species. And how much had it changed in that 100 years if you said this lichenologist at the beginning of the 20th century did that trip and then you did it then almost 100 years later, then how much had changed? Oh, yeah. Well, I've studied that really close. What happened is I've been to Harvard twice to study the collections there besides my own field work. If you ever see the Hollywood sign in, in Los Angeles, that's the Santa Monica Mountains. And that, that stretches from where you see the Hollywood sign down to the coast and then goes along the coast for about 25 miles. And uh, that was his main study area back in those days without cars and stuff. He Otherwise, he had to go by train and then horseback usually to go collect lichens. But at that time, he could easily get around that whole area by horse or by walking. In that area, 70 lichens that he collected, we did not find. Now, we, we found more lichens overall than he did, but we were able to go to areas farther north in the range and uh, that he couldn't, that he normally wouldn't have been able to get into at that time. We, of course, with the car, were able to drive all over the place, park and then hike. And uh, this, California has chaparral, it's kind of a brush. So it's hard to get around in if there aren't trails or, or cars. But still, in terms of comparing the species, 70 were missing. We figured out part of them had disappeared when they built houses and the highway along in Malibu and places like that. They built houses. They built a highway that runs along the front of the mountains. He could only get halfway up the coast in the front of the mountains. So that, that destroyed part of them. And then part of them were from farther north. So they must have been there when it was wetter. And since the beginning of the 20th century, rainfall in in southern california has been decreasing so some of those probably died out because they were they were outliers and it was dry but the main thing that destroyed them and which surprised me when i first went there is is reading his flora as expecting all these things growing on trees and especially some some rare little small lichens and when i went there there was hardly anything on the bushes and then i found out what i found out later is starting as the as the Santa Monica Mountains near Los Angeles and Malibu there began to dry out and in the beginning of the 20th century by about 1920 or so there was there was massive fires began and before that it was estimated that a fire maybe only happened naturally there every 500 years so so since then i think there's been 200 fires in the Santa Monica Mountains some of them have been very small but other ones have covered burnt areas, large, large areas. And uh, even the Hollywood sign was recently threatened a couple years ago as that whole part of the mountain burnt for maybe the 20th time. So, and what's causing the fires? Drought. And what's causing drought? Climate change. That's probably the the biggest cause of lichen loss in, in California right now, for instance. And And now we have it happening here in Europe, Portugal, Spain, fires. We're having them in Greece. Italy, and uh, here in the Czech Republic, which has, which considers they have a drought if it doesn't rain one month out of the year, 
now they have whole months where it doesn't rain sometimes hardly at all. And we started to have fires here too more often. That's just one effect of climate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was the lichenologist, Kerry Nudson. To hear him tell me even more about lichens and how they are affected by climate change, head over to the Instant Genius Extra podcast. The latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. Thank you.